Let's go ahead, and if you have your Bibles, would you open up to John chapter 3? We will primarily be in John chapter 3. What we have in the primary passage of the scripture for this lesson, which will be John 3, verses 22 to 36, is the overlapping of the ministry of John the Baptist with the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was a transitional time for believers in Israel because it was a time when they would cease from following John and they would begin to follow the Lord Jesus. Now, you know, the majority of the common people in Israel did accept the ministry of John the Baptist. They did accept it. Remember what it said in Mark 1, 5, that all the land of Judea and they of Jerusalem went out to see him. They perceived that John was a true prophet of Israel. And they were pleased, very pleased, to again have a spokesman from God because it had been 400 years that they I had not heard from him since the time of Malachi. So the people flocked out to see John the Baptist and to be baptized with his baptism. Remember, his baptism was a baptism unto the repentance of sin. They would go out, they would confess that they were sinners, and then they would repent and be baptized. His message was repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the people, people gladly accepted that message because they were looking for a king. In other words, they wanted a kingdom because they wanted a king. However, sadly and erroneously, the king that they desired was a king who would lead them in a revolution against their oppressors, the Romans. So they, what we could say, they accepted a prophet and they wanted a king. The problem was they didn't realize they needed a savior. They accepted a prophet, they wanted a king, but they didn't want a king who would save them from their sins. They wanted a king who would save them from the Romans. They didn't realize their desperate need for a savior. Now, why was an overlap in the ministries of Christ and John the Baptist necessary? Well, what do you think would have happened if John had been born and he had lived his entire life and died before the Lord Jesus ever came to earth? The answer is, if he had lived and died before Jesus, there would have been nobody around to physically point people to Jesus and to identify him publicly to the nation. So God purposely designed an overlap in the two ministries so that John, an Old Testament prophet, don't ever think, just because John is described to us in the New Testament that he was a New Testament prophet, he wasn't. He was an Old Testament prophet because he lived and died before the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So God designed that John, an Old Testament prophet, could point Israel to Christ, and he, he de- determined that he would use an Old Testament-style prophetic ministry so that the Jewish people would listen to this man and, and you know, accept him as a prophet and believe in the one to, who he identified to the nation um, with these words, Behold the Lamb of God which cometh to take away the sins of the world. You see, if John had been anything less than an Old Testament prophet, the nation would not have accepted him, much less, less have listened to him. What if God had elected to use um, someone who was a Gentile, or someone who came in a New Testament kind of style, who dressed like, uh, let's say, like our ministers today dress? or in a suit and a tie or something like that. Would the Jewish people have accepted his message? No, not very likely. So, so God used John, 
it, you know, who was came in the style. He, he came dressed like an Old Testament prophet. He came um, in the manner of Elijah. He came living like an Old Testament prophet. He came prophesying like an Old Testament prophet and even performing an Old Testament type of purification with his baptism. And all this was designed by God so that John would then gain the acceptance of the Jewish people so that he could identify Christ to them and introduce him to the nation. So we see John had to be alive at the same time as Jesus. Now, although John and the Lord Jesus, neither one of them had a problem with this, they both understood and appreciated their respective duties before God, yet there were some men, and we'll see this in our lesson this morning, there were some men who did not understand or appreciate the sovereign purposes of these two ministry. Similarly, there are people yet today and all down through the corridors of history who do not understand and appreciate the two testaments. They don't understand the two testaments uh, contained in the Bible. You know why there are two. Some people accept only the Old Testament. They do not accept the New Testament. And who primarily do you think of when I say some people, right. Jews, the majority of the Jews, there are secular Jews who reject the Old Testament. They reject the whole Bible, but most, most believing Jews accept the Old Testament, but they reject the New Testament. And on the other hand, and this is, I've heard this within Christendom, there are those who say, we only study the New Testament. The Old Testament is for the, the Jews. <laughs> So we don't bother with the Old Testament. But neither one of those two views is correct. Neither one is accurate. The Old Testament is absolutely necessary for us to know um, who Christ is. Can you imagine just opening up with the New Testament and not ever have ha having the uh, Old Testament? You wouldn't know why we even need a Savior. And we certainly wouldn't know how to identify who was the Savior we need the Old Testament, first of all, to show us how we fall so far short of fulfilling God's law. We also need it so that we can identify who the true Savior is, the prophesied Messiah. And that's, you know, um, how we know who Jesus is and that he is our Savior because he fulfilled all those Old Testament prophecies and all those prophetic types that we study as we go through his life. So without the Old Testament, we would not see how Jesus fulfilled all the messianic types and prophecies. Remember, um, old Dr. Lehman Strauss used to say this over and over again, and this isn't in your notes, so I wanted to put it up here. He'd say, the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. In other words, in the Old Testament, the New Testament is hidden, okay? The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed, so that was a good little saying. You have to think about it a little bit, but it's true. There are many people who do not understand this truth, just as the men that we will be looking at in this lesson failed to understand how Jesus's, uh, how John's ministry, and identify John with the Old Covenant, all right, the Old Testament, and uh, how his, his ministry and Jesus's ministry, and you could, of course, identify Jesus with the New Covenant and the New Testament, how those two work together. And the consequence of their ignorance was a confrontation in this lesson, just as it is also with um, 
those who accept only the Old Testament and those who accept only the New Testament. In this lesson, we're going to be, the title for our lesson is The Baptist Beloved Bridegroom. We're going to be looking at three different characteristics which appear during the course of the confrontation that we'll be discussing. We're going to learn about the jealousy of men, the humility of John, and the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ as we look at three outline divisions, the baptismal feud, the bridegroom's friend, and the Baptist farewell. So let's begin real quickly by looking at the baptismal feud. And in this section, we'll talk about the jealousy of men. The jealousy was from John's disciples in this situation. So look with me, if you would, at John 3, starting at verse 22. It says, after these things, and we'll discuss what these things are in a minute, after these things came Jesus and his disciples into the land of Judea. And there he tarried with them and baptized. And if you want to just write this down, if you don't mind writing in your Bible, he was there with his disciples baptizing about six to eight months. So when we finish today's lesson, Jesus will will be at the end of his first year of public ministry. Isn't that amazing? Already will have completed. How many years did Jesus have in ministry? About three and a half. So after today's lesson, he'll be finished with the first year. It's known in our general outline, which I think I have at the beginning of your books, as the year of obscurity. Not very many people knew who he was. Or, but now he's mo- he'll be moving out into um, his, year, uh, his years of public ministry where he's more well-known. So anyway, here he's, he's baptizing for about six to eight months. So you would think we'll probably be through with our Bible study in a year or two, right? <laughs> Oh, no, I told the group yesterday, you ain't seen nothing yet. (laughs) Okay, verse 23, and John also was baptizing in Enon near to Salem because there was much water there and they came and were baptized for John was not yet cast into prison. There, then there arose a question between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purifying And they came unto John and said unto him, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, behold, the same baptizeth, and all men come to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. All right, let's go back to verse 22 where it says, After these things. What does the after these things refer to? Well, it refers to the cleansing of the temple. It refers to the many miracles which the Lord performed after he cleansed the temple. Remember, he went throughout Jerusalem and performed many miracles. They weren't recorded. We don't know what they were. But I'm sure he, you know, gave sight to the blind and healed the handicapped and and, um, healed lepers and all sorts of things like he normally did in the rest of his life. And then after these things also includes what we looked at last week, his nighttime conversation with, with Nicodemus. So it was after these things that the Lord left the holy city and he took his small band of disciples into the Judean countryside. Now, two reasons for the Lord's move, you know, away from Jerusalem out into the countryside are given for us in verse 22. One reason for his move is that he just wanted to spend more time with his disciples. At this point, I guess he still has six disciples. He may have picked up one or two more that I don't, we're not told about. But uh, he, he just wanted to spend time with them and, and, and uh, get, have them get to know him and, I'm sure, teach them. Secondly, he did this so that he could do some baptizing. 
Although, now if we just read this account in John 3, it would sound like Jesus did some baptizing, wouldn't it? It does. It sounds like Jesus himself physically baptized people. However, that is not the case. And if you will look over at John chapter 4, verse 2, you will see that this is not the case. It says in John 4, 2, though Jesus himself baptized not, but his disciples. In other words, he didn't baptize. He had his disciples doing the baptizing. Now, this was really wise on the Lord's part. Was it not? What do you think would have happened if Jesus baptized some people? Exactly. They would have had this uh, superiority complex thing. You know, well, I was baptized by the Lord himself. You were merely baptized by a mere man. (laughs) You know, John the Baptist was a mere man. His his disciples who were baptizing and helping him were mere men. And Jesus' disciples who were baptizing were mere men. So the Lord was very wise in the fact that he did not baptize anybody. John's baptizing ministry. Now, Jesus was out there in the Judean wilderness, and his disciples were baptizing people. You know, with the same kind of baptism. It wasn't believer's baptism yet. They weren't being baptized with believer's baptism because there was no believer's baptism until after the death and resurrection of Jesus. So when Jesus' disciples were baptizing people, it was the same baptism as John's. It was the baptism of confession of sin and repentance of sin. All right? And John, now John had moved up. From where he had been, remember he had been down here near the, um, just north of the Dead Sea in the area of Bethabara. So John and his disciples have moved up to a place called Enon, which we're told was near to Salem. Now the exact location of this is not really, uh, it's somewhat in doubt, but most Bible scholars believe it to be near the, uh, the juncture of Samaria, Decapolis, and Perea. And that that would make a lot of sense because um, this would be easily accessible to people from all of these different areas. It would be a great place. Also, it would make a lot of sense because there was much water there. Uh, if you can see the, the, the uh, Jordan River and the Jabbok River and this little spout river here. I'm not sure what that river is, but they all three meet in that location. And this would fir- certainly fit the description that we have here because it says there was it was a place of much water. Um, also, Enon is an Aramaic word. We've been hearing a lot about uh, the Aramaic language lately because of the passion play. I mean, the passion play, the passion movie. I guess the whole thing is in Aramaic, right, with subtitles. That's my understanding. And I, I heard a documentary on television a couple Sundays ago about the Aramaic language is still spoken. Did anybody see that? is still spoken today in one little isolated community of people. And that's where, I guess, Mel Gibson sent his language experts to study the language. They don't even have it in a written form, but they still do speak Aramaic, which is very interesting. Anyway, Enon is an Aramaic word which literally means place of springs. So again, you know, this location aptly fits that because there are there is a group of seven fresh underwater springs there um so it means place of springs and it's near to salem and what do you think salem means peace according to me yeah because i've got that up (laughs) shalom you've all heard the word shalom which means peace that's how the jewish people greet each other so that's very interesting because john finished up and this is the end of john's ministry by the way this is where he ends up is in this place of springs near to peace 
because the next thing we read about John, he's, he's arrested and he's imprisoned. And so I thought that was such a lovely, um, a lovely place for John the Baptist to end up because it's, it stands in stark contrast to where he began. Where did he begin his ministry? In the Judean wilderness, you know, among the vipers <laughs> and the hot sand, a place of drought. It's possible that God may call some of us to a dry area, or it may look like it's a dry area, to minister just as John the Baptist did. Uh, you know, maybe you're involved in a ministry which right now looks very, very dry. Maybe you're teaching a Sunday school class and you only have a couple students in there, and, and maybe it can look really dry and very discouraging. But if we're faithful, like John the Baptist was faithful, the Lord, you know, if you, the, the number one problem I see in, in, among Christians is so many grow weary and faint before they ever see the harvest. You know, but John was faithful and he did see the harvest, which is sort of symbolized here by the place of springs. You know, m much living water flowed out. And it was a place where um, he had that peace of God which passes all understanding. So the lesson to us is do not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap. The Lord's disciples and John's disciples then were baptizing in two different locations. They weren't too incredibly far from each other, but they, they were a, a good distance. Uh, John 3.24 was inserted in this context for us by the apostle, by the author of this gospel, and he did it in order to give us a time setting. Now remember, John wrote his gospel last. So he had probably already read... Matthew and Mark and Luke's accounts. And so he inserted verse 24 to keep us correct here in the chronology. I want to show you something just to show you how important it is that we're studying the life of Christ using a harmony of the gospel, which puts all four gospels in, in best as, as they can in chronological order. If you will flip real quickly over to, let's say, uh, which one? Um, Matthew. Look at Matthew 4. And uh, if you look at, like, verses 1 to 11, what do verses 1 to 11, and we could do this with Mark as well, because we have the same exact picture in Mark, and Luke pretty much too. What does Matthew 1, 1 at 4, 1 to, to 11 talk, talk about? Right, the Lord's temptation in the wilderness. All right, then what does verse 12 tell us? Now, when Jesus had heard that John was cast into prison, he departed into Galilee. The end of John's ministry is right there because it says he's in prison. If you, will, if you would just read Matthew, and the same thing is true in Mark and in Luke. Now, Luke includes a little bit something extra, but primarily all three of them go from the wilderness temptation of Jesus right to the imprisonment of John. What would we have missed without John's gospel? We would have missed chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4. If you want to insert that between those two verses there, Matthew 11, 4, 11, and 4, 12, we would have missed the following things. We would not have learned how Jesus got his first six disciples, which is told to us in John chapter 1. We would not have known about his, uh, his first miracle of turning water into wine. 
which is given to us in John chapter 2, we would have known nothing about the Lord's first cleansing of the temple, which is given to us at the end of John chapter 2, and we would have learned nothing about his nighttime dialogue with Nicodemus and about being born again. So, in order to make it very clear, you know, to us, the readers, the chronology of events John told us here that at this point in time, the Baptists had not yet been arrested and put into prison. And that's why I just want to throw that out to you. That's why it's so important that we discuss and study all four Gospels at the same time. It takes longer, but we do get a much clearer picture of the Lord's life step by step. With the Lord's disciples baptizing in close proximity to where John was also baptizing, somebody sooner or later, was bound to eventually ask the question, why are there two groups of men baptizing? And, because this is human nature, they would ask the question, and which group is more important? Which was happening at this time was that little by little, the followers of John the Baptist were beginning to trickle down a little bit further south and down into the Judean wilderness, I mean, um, countryside, and they were beginning to join with the followers of Jesus Christ. So John's crowds, you see, were beginning to thin out while Jesus's crowds were beginning to grow. And although this did not upset John the Baptist in the least, it did upset some of his remaining disciples, some that had not gone over and joined with Jesus. Actually, this whole situation delighted John the Baptist because this was the whole thrust of his ministry, you know, to point people to Jesus. Do you remember how, in effect, he had said to Andrew and John, remember who Andrew and John were? To begin with, whose disciples were they? They were John the Baptist's disciples. And uh, when Jesus walked by, John the Baptist pointed to Jesus and said, uh, there's the Lamb of God. Go and follow him. You know, he was pushing his disciples over to Jesus. So John, you know, he didn't get upset and discouraged because he was losing his followers. He didn't put aside his pulpit and have a big pity party and, and get depressed about this because his congregation was getting smaller and smaller. He didn't quit. He didn't go on early retirement. He just faithfully persevered and continued right to the very end to point people to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's easy. Do you, would you, how many of you would raise your hand and say it's easy to become discouraged in ministry? If you're involved in any kind of ministry or service for the Lord, is it easy to become discouraged? It, it is. There's no doubt about it. It's very easy to become. And I think as we live in these uh, last days, it's, it becomes even more discouraging because there's so few people who seem to be um, sold out anymore. So it is easy to become discouraged in our labors for Christ. There are so many, as I said before, so many Christians who do get discouraged and just throw up their hands and and give up. They, they faint before, like I said, before they see the harvest come in. And consequently, they miss the greatest blessing. I have... Um, Well, I've heard many stories, and you have too, of missionaries who will be out on a field for years and years and years, sometimes without seeing any convert. I remember of one missionary who was in India, I think it was for 30 years before he finally had his first convert. And that first convert became the first Gideon in uh, India and uh, then went on to uh, 
bear much fruit, much fruit. So you never know. We just don't, we don't give up. God looks at faithfulness more than anything else, doesn't he? John didn't just throw up his hands and say, woe is me. My whole ministry is crumbling. I'm losing everybody. You see, he did not measure the effectiveness of ministry by how many he had accumulated in his congregation. In God's sight, a ministry is not measured by numbers, but by its effectiveness. And I, it never fails to happen if I tell somebody, you know, that I teach ladies' Bible studies. The first question almost every time is, how many do you have? And that's what I tell Terry. I never like to count. I just don't count. God didn't want David to count how many were in his kingdom, and so I just don't count. I say, I don't know, a lot. <laughs> but God doesn't judge by the, you know, the number of bodies that are sitting out there. John's ministry was totally successful because his crowds were diminishing and uh, Christ's were increasing. That, after all, that's what God had wanted to have happen all along. Rather than measuring the effectiveness of a, of a church or of a ministry by how many bodies are in attendance, we should be measuring that ministry by it, the effectiveness, you know, how many souls in that ministry are being directed toward Jesus Christ. He does, God just does not judge a ministry by bodies. I mean, you could get the biggest, some of the biggest churches in this country have thousands and thousands of people, and yet the church services are dead, and people are not being directed to the Lord Jesus Christ. They're being entertained. He judges by how many of those people in a ministry are being led and pointed to Jesus Christ. And by pointing people to Jesus, a ministry um, or a local church body or an evangelistic ministry or even a missionary might lose some of the followers, as we see with John the Baptist. Some might be negative losses. Some people might leave a, a congregation or a ministry because, um, oh, I don't want to hear about sin, they say, or I don't want to hear about being born again that's just too old-fashioned that's not for me so some might lose members in a negative way some might lose members in a positive way as with john the baptist most he lost was in a were in a was a positive way they they were going over to jesus you know a, a, an effective the most effective church ministry i can think of would lose members because so many of his young people were maybe being called out to the mission field or called into the pastorate themselves so you're going to lose people good ways and bad ways. If we judged ministries just by numbers, what would we have to say about the Lord Jesus Christ? Wasn't very successful, was he? Wasn't very. He only, he only had twelve disciples, and one of them was a false disciple. 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 <laughs> All right. Back to our text. Uh, we find here that a problem arose between some of John's disciples and some of the Jews. Now, whenever you see the term. The Jews in the Gospels. Most of the time, it refers to the religious rulers. You know, the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. It doesn't really necessarily refer to the Jewish people. Now, the issue here concerned whose baptism was more significant, the baptism of Jesus' men or the baptism of John. And I believe that this was probably an evil ploy on the part of these Jewish authorities to attempt to divide the effective ministries of both Jesus and John. You know, between the two, the numbers were growing. 
more and more people were being baptized. And so there was a, a growing ministry w- between John and Jesus. And perhaps these Jews who came along were intentionally trying to provoke John's disciples to jealousy in order to break up these two joint ministries. In any case, whatever their motive behind their question might have been, the fact is that they did cause jealousy in the hearts of John's disciples. And so these, these remaining disciples of John came to him, and they said, in effect, or they said the exact words, Our rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, who were they speaking of? Jesus. He that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness... Behold, the same baptizes, and all men come to him. Now, this is so ridiculous here. These disciples had been with John for quite some time, you know, probably at least six months, if not a little bit longer. And therefore, they would have heard John preach over and over and over again his message. They would have heard that he had pointed to Jesus and said, you know, he's the Lamb of God. They even said that, you know, they said, uh, to whom thou bearest witness. So they knew that John had pointed to Jesus as the the coming Savior. And yet, when people were turning to Jesus, they got jealous. They got jealous for John. And their jealousy was not only ridiculous here, but it was sinful. Of course, jealousy is always sinful. They knew that Jesus was the one John had proclaimed to be the Lamb of God. So essentially, here's what their complaint is. Essentially, they were saying, Rabbi, talking to John the Baptist, do you remember the one that you've been telling us about? You know, the one that you've been telling us to follow as the Lamb of God, which cometh to take away the sins of the world. You know, the one that you said would uh, baptize with, you're baptizing with water, but this one would come along and baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. You know, that one you said you're not even worthy to loosen the, the latchets of his shoes. You know, that one, well, guess what, John? Guess what? We have a problem, and it's absolutely eating us alive with jealousy for you because people are going over to him, and they're not staying faithful to you like we are. You know, what are we going to do about this situation? Now, that sounds ridiculous to us, doesn't it? But this same type of irrational thinking has been true of the majority of the Jewish people ever since the coming of Christ. Now think of the Jewish people in relation to John's disciples. John represents the Old Covenant, Jesus the New, all right? The the Jewish people have the Old Testament, and they claim to believe it for the most part. And yet, from Genesis to Malachi, who does the Old Testament point to as the Lamb of God, which cometh to take away the sins of the world? The Old Testament points over and over again to Jesus. However, when Jesus came and people began going over to him, to the one whom the Old Testament points to, what happened? The Jews got very jealous. In fact, they got so jealous that their jealousy soon turned to anger. And their anger got such a hold on of them that they wound up killing their long-awaited Savior, their Messiah. But this didn't stop people from going over to the one the Old Testament pointed to. In fact, after his death and his resurrection, even more and more people were going over to the one the Old Testament pointed to. And so the Jews started killing some of the Christians' spokesmen, such as James and uh, Stephen. And they even hired 
a, a zealous, jealous young Pharisee named Saul to go after these people who were following the one to whom the Old Testament pointed. And, of course, Saul eventually became one of those people himself, didn't he? So you see the comparison there and how ridiculous it looks. You know, we can laugh at John's disciples, but that's exactly what's gone on with the, with the Jewish people. The disciples of John were absolutely overtaken here with jealousy and envy, which are favorite fleshly tools used by the evil one, Satan, and one's a, a tool that he has much success with to make servants of the Lord stumble and fall. Satan was successful, you see, in using the Jews, the religious rulers that were involved in this, to stir up jealousy in the hearts of John's disciples. And he then used John's jealous disciples to try to stir up jealousy in the heart of John himself. However, uh, he didn't succeed there. But the enemy is very clever. I mean, he's been around a long time, and he's really gotten to know human nature. And he knows how easy it is for us to be prone to jealousy and envy. So he often attempts to make one servant of the Lord envious or jealous of the greater crowds and the greater recognition of another servant of the Lord. Do we see this going on in ministries? It's not a very difficult thing to do since we, as humans, are egocentric we're prone more to egocentricity than we are to being Christocentric, Christ-centered. You know, even when we're born again, we tend to go back to our fleshly, carnal natures. Thankfully, however, we have some examples from the, the scripture of men who conquered the temptation of the demons of jealousy. For example, there's a story of Moses in Numbers chapter 11. Joshua just like John's disciples, Joshua was very jealous for Moses because of the prophesying of two men named Eldad and Medad. And people were listening to these two prophets and getting excited about their prophecy. So Joshua, being jealous for Moses, came to Moses and, you know, said, look what's going on. This is a problem. But Moses answered him with the most wonderful words. He said this, and I, you have them up here. This is in Numbers eleven twenty nine. Envious thou for my sake? Would God that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. You see, isn't that wonderful? That's just marvelous. I love that. Moses was such a great man. He couldn't be stirred to jealousy. What he essentially is saying is... Uh, you know, like if, if one of you came and said, you know, there's another ladies Bible study in Sanford and it's just growing leaps and bounds. And instead of having jealousy prick my heart, I'd say, praise the Lord. You know, would that there'd be a thousand ladies Bible studies going on in Sanford and down in Moore County. You know, the more the merrier, the more people that are hearing the gospel, the better it is. That's essentially what Moses was saying. He could not be stirred up with jealousy. And so, too, John the Baptist was above such pettiness. He knew that it was his divine commission from God himself to be the forerunner of the Messiah and to be a symbol of the Old Testament covenant, which pointed to the New Testament covenant fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So it would be foolish for John to resent his own success in doing what God had ordained him to do. You see, it was really his own success in his ministry. And that's why so many people were going over to Jesus. So he'd be jealous of his own ministry and his, the success of his ministry. 
The same principle would apply if the Old Testament was jealous of the New Testament. Can you imagine such a thing? Old Testament being jealous of the New Testament, because now the New Testament gets so much attention. (laughs) The Old Testament points to Jesus, as I said. Happily, many search it and find that the Jesus of the New Testament is its fulfillment. So it would make no sense for the Old Testament to be jealous of itself for having done its job. John actually said, if you look ahead down at verse 29, John said that this was, a, this was a cause for rejoicing. You know, not for getting depressed and discouraged. It was a cause for rejoicing that people were going over to Jesus. He said, uh, my joy is, is fulfilled because this is happening. He, you see, he was free of that evil spirit, which we could call professional or pastoral jealousy. Or we could call it ministerial envy. Do we have this problem? Not just among pastors and among churches and among denominations, but we have it even in music ministries, do we not? We have it in perhaps um, teaching ministries. Uh, We have it between um, uh, mission boards and missionaries and schools, Christian schools, on and on and on. John the Baptist knew that a man or a ministry can gain no success or receive any spiritual blessing unless those things are given to it or him through and by God himself. And that's what I love about his answer to his jealous disciples. He said, this, this is just as good as Moses' response. He said in verse um, 27, a man, or put... Put a woman in there if you want to. A man or a woman can receive nothing except it be given him from from God, from heaven. He explained this uh, to his troubled disciples, and I don't know what happened to them. Maybe they listened up and went over to Christ also. I hope so. It's, It's virtually impossible to cause jealousy in the heart of a godly servant who truly puts Christ first in his life or her life and ministry. John knew that he didn't need to stand back and be jealous of what God himself was doing. God is sovereign. What he does and who he decides to use is totally his business, is it not? It's totally his business and his alone. And that's the attitude that we as Christians ought to have, you know, whoever, whatever we're involved in, whatever ministry we're involved in. We just remember God's sovereign, and he can use, if he decides to use one of us, that's great. If he decides to use somebody else greater, more than he uses us, that doesn't really matter, because he gets the glory anyway. It's not for us to get the glory at all. All the fruit is up to him. All right, let's look quickly. Let's look at the bridegroom's friend. And under this section, we're going to look at John's denial to be the bridegroom, his delight in the bridegroom, and his decrease to the bridegroom. Let's begin with his denial to be the bridegroom in verse 28. Ye yourselves, of course, this is John still talking to his disciples. He says, ye yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. Here he proceeds to tell his men first who he was not, And then in verse 29, we'll look at next, he tells them who he was. He said, first of all, that he was definitely not the Christ. He had already said this back in John 1.20. He had told them, or he was actually speaking to the Jews back then, but his disciples heard him say, I am not the Christ. John was disappointed in his disciples because of their 
of their jealousy for him. So in effect, he rebukingly said to them, you yourselves have heard me say over and over again that I am not the Christ, but I am merely the one sent before him. I am the voice crying in the wilderness. I'm the forerunner. I'm the ambassador of Christ. All right, we'll move on. I'm just going to spend that much time because I want to save some time for the end. I have a few more things in your notes which you can read, but let's look on uh, at uh, John's delight in verse 29. He goes on and he says, He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom which standeth and heareth him rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This, my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. All right, so after reminding his men again, verse 28, that he is not the Christ, was not the Christ, the baptizer stated that he was merely the friend of who? The bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom. And this is a term that we would say today, we would use this term, best man. I'm the best man. We don't say the friend of the bridegroom. We call him the best man. To explain his position in terms that his men could grasp, he gave the illustration of a bride, a bridegroom, and the best man. Now, in a Hebrew wedding, it was the best man who took the hand of the bride and placed it into the hand of the bridegroom. It was the best man's job to do that. And this was done after the marriage ceremony was completed. They weren't allowed to touch before. But once they'd said their vows or whatever, after the ceremony, then the best man put their hands, the bridegroom's, the bride's hand into the bridegroom's hand. Jesus Christ, of course, is the bridegroom. And in this case, Israel is, is the bride. John was basically saying to his followers here, my joy is full because I have completed my job. I have fulfilled my mission. I have introduced Israel to her bridegroom. I have placed her hand into the hand of the groom, of her groom. Now, we know from hindsight that when that hand went to go into the hand of the bridegroom, Israel was dissatisfied with the bridegroom, so she pulled her hand away, right? We know that. Actually, I think John knows that he says something a little bit later that I'll point out. But uh, the job description... I think this is very interesting. A job description of the best man in a Hebrew, a Jewish wedding, also is actually the job description or the function of every true minister of God. Because you think of your pastors, his job is to to take the hands of his people and place them into the hands of of Jesus Christ. So I I thought this was a new perspective, a new way of looking at a pastor, that he is like a best man at a wedding ceremony. The genuine pastor will introduce his congregation to their bridegroom. John had successfully fulfilled his duty as the, the best man, and therefore his cup was overflowing because his followers, you see, would next hear the voice of the bridegroom. You see, in a Jewish wedding, The bridegroom could not speak until the best man had taken the bride's hand and put it into his hand. Before that, he could not speak. Uh, So John, up to this point, had been the voice. John had been the voice crying in the wilderness. And now he was content because he could stop talking. And from this point on, whose voice is it we're going to be hearing? We're going to be hearing the bridegroom's voice. Jesus will begin to now teach 
and we'll hear his wonderful sermons and all that he teaches his people. Okay, let's move on to his decrease to the bridegroom. And for this, we will look at verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. Here he also informed his disciples that even more people would be leaving him in order to follow Jesus. So he was telling, John was telling his disciples to get used to this transition. It's interesting to notice that in John chapter 3, the beginning part of John chapter 3, you know what we looked at last week, the Lord Jesus used the word must two times. Remember how I told you that Jesus only speaks the word must a total of five times? in all the Gospels, and two of those five times were found in in his discussion with uh, Nicodemus. What were they? Ye must be born again. And the second one, which I failed to point out last week, and I should have, was when he said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That is very significant because it tells us Jesus knew from the very beginning that he was going to the cross. He knew the Son of Man must die. And by way of crucifixion, he even knew how he, his, what his death would be, that he would be lifted up. Um, and now we find that John the Baptist also uses the word must twice in John chapter 3. He says, he, speaking of Jesus, must increase but I must decrease. According to God's eternal and sovereign plan, John understood that Christ must increase just as uh, the New Testament covenant must increase, and John and all that he stood for, the Old Testament covenant, must decrease, must fade away. Quickly to Hebrews chapter 8. I want to show you how this is actually stated for us in the New Testament shadows of the old must retreat before the breaking light of the real substance. See, everything in the Old Testament was just shadows. The New Testament has the real thing. You know, all the sacrifices in the Old Testament just pointed to the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ, right? The priesthood of the Old Testament just, uh, you know, pointed ahead to the priesthood of the believers. All right, let's look at verse 8, uh, verse 13 in chapter 8. It says, in that he saith, a new covenant, he hath made the first old. The new covenant, you see, made the first covenant the old covenant. The covenant. Now it's the old covenant because the new came along. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. Just like John must decrease, so the old covenant would vanish away. Of course, we still use it and we still study it because of the fact that it points to Christ. And, and we know who Christ is and we can teach people, say, look, you know, how all these uh, prophecies written thousands of years before Christ pointed to him. Exactly. He fulfilled every single one of them. And, of course, there's many wonderful principles that we learn from the Old Testament character. So we don't throw it away, but it, it decreased while the New Testament increased. All right, now let's look at the Baptist's farewell. And uh, for this, we will read verses 31 to 36. <clears throat> I can't get to my watch. It's under my cuff, and my cuff is so tight. Okay. <laughs> all right, verse 31. He that cometh from above is above all. He that is of the earth is earthly and speaketh of the earth. He that cometh from heaven is above all. And what he hath seen and heard, that he testifieth. 
and no man receiveth his testimony. There it is. Remember when I said uh, Israel pulled her hand away from her bridegroom? Apparently John knew this. He knew that they, Israel as a nation would not accept Christ's testimony. It's amazing all that John knew. As you, as you am reading these verses, just think John the Baptist knew all this doctrine about he knew who Jesus was. Let's go on and hear him speaking. He says, he that receiveth, received his testimony has set to his seal that God is true. For he whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God. For God giveth not the spirit by measure unto him. The father loveth the son and hath given all things into his hand. Isn't that incredible? John knew this about Jesus. And then verse 36, he that believeth on the son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. All right, here in these verses, John's disciples heard that Jesus Christ is absolutely superior in every way feasible to their leader, to John himself. Jesus, in fact, is far superior to everyone for that manner, is he not? Oops, I forgot to put that up there. Oh, I did have it up early? All right. Well, then I forgot to put that up there. <laughs> All right. What we have here are in verses 31 to 35, we have five reasons for belief in the Lord's supremacy and majesty. There's one in each verse. And then in verse 36, we have a final invitation to come to Jesus Christ from John the Baptist. Now, the first reason mentioned for believing in the supremacy of the Lord Jesus is found in verse 31. And John says that Jesus is supreme because he comes from where? He comes from heaven. He comes from above. Notice that the word earth or earthly appears three times in this verse. And also the word above appears three times. I just thought I would throw that out because that's sort of interesting. John, in saying, he that is of the earth is earthly and speaketh of the earth, was emphasizing the limitation of all ministers or messengers, like himself, who have a divine message to deliver, but are themselves merely earthen vessels. You know, although John's message came straight from God, yet John himself was just an earthen vessel, was he not? He might have been filled with the Holy Spirit from the time of his mother's womb, but he still was, uh, uh, he was limited because he was like you and I, he was a human being and he inherited from his parents the Adamic sin nature. Same thing would be true of Moses or Elijah or Daniel or David or any of them. But the Lord Jesus, you see, is far superior to all men, including John the Baptist, because of his origin. Now, even though technically speaking, he didn't have an origin because he's from everlasting, he's eternal. Yet, you know, for you, you need to use a word. So you say his origin is from above. He's superior because he is from heaven. We know that his conception was supernatural. You know, his mother was, uh, he was conceived in his mother's womb by the Holy Spirit. John wasn't. John had a miraculous uh, conception, but it wasn't, it wasn't of the Holy Spirit. He was born from a human mother and a human father. <clears throat> but Jesus, of course, was born of the Holy Spirit and he is uh, eternal God. So therefore, he is superior to any earthly messenger who ever existed. Now, the second reason John gives for the Lord's supremacy over him and over all earthly messengers is his firsthand divine knowledge. 
Because Jesus is from heaven, he has divine knowledge of all heavenly things. You know, if you lived in heaven forever and ever in eternity past, you would know all heavenly things, wouldn't you? You would plus if you were God. Well, I guess if you lived in eternity past, you would have to be God. <laughs> so he knows all about God and he knows all about heavenly things. You see, when God through, spoke through the prophets, such as John the Baptist, he was uh, speaking to men through interpreters, really. But when God spoke to the world through his son, it was God speaking directly to man, not through interpreters. The tragic part is, as John says at the end of verse 32, that um, no man receiveth his testimony. By and large, most of his, well, Israel as a nation did disbelieve in Jesus. Now, the third supremacy of Christ is that his testimony agrees with God's testimony. And that's what he says in verse 33. He says, he that hath received his testimony hath set to his seal that God is true. When a legal document such as a wedding certificate, was confirmed to be true. It was officially sealed. Jesus Christ, John's saying, is God's perfect, truthful witness. And his words are true, therefore, in an absolute sense, not just in a relative sense. Jesus' words are absolutely true. When Jesus speaks, it is the same as God speaking. So those who receive and believe, such as you and I, his testimony and his witness, we are putting our seal of approval on the truthfulness of God himself. When we believe what Jesus says, we're putting our seal of confirmation on his words, confessing that his words are in total agreement with God's words. Okay? Then in verse 31, he gave the fourth supremacy of Christ by stating that he was sent by God with the full measure of the Holy Spirit. John would have perhaps explained to his disciples that although he himself had been filled with the Holy Spirit from the time of his mother's womb, as we said before, yet the Holy Spirit within him was limited to a degree because of his human sinful nature. However, Christ was the divine embodiment of the triune Godhead. You know, you and I have the wonderful privilege of being filled, you know, filled, well, um, indwelt by the Holy Spirit at the time of our salvation. You know, in the Old Testament, the, the believers were not indwelt with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit would come upon them and anoint them for their different services for the Lord, and then he would, would leave. But in the New Covenant, we, are, we become the temples of the Holy Spirit. Uh, so we might be, be indwelt with the Spirit, but the Lord Jesus is the, fulfill, the fullness of his expression he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was indwelt by the Holy Spirit. He was led by the Holy Spirit. He was driven by the Holy Spirit. He was uh, filled with the Holy Spirit. And from the time of his baptism, he was anointed by the Holy Spirit. Others, you see, have the Spirit by measure and no fragments of the truth. But God gave not the Spirit by measure to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus has the full measure of the spirit and he knew the full truth of God in fact he is the truth and I know all this is kind of deep it's deep for me and I gotta really study it and get it into my head too alright fifth Christ is supreme overall because God loves him and has given him all things do what oh I'm already okay here we go thank you gotta keep me straight here <clears throat> 
when you have 34 transparencies, it gets a little... <laughs> All right. Um, I love this one. The Baptist here was testifying that, that Jesus is, was, is much more, was more, much more than a messenger or a witness for God. He is, in fact, God's beloved son. As I said, John really understood a lot here. He understood that he was his beloved son and that it was to the son that the father has given all things. So this is a further testimony that John is giving as to the deity of Jesus Christ because none but one who was equal with God himself would God the father give all things. All things. And actually in the Greek the word give or given, whichever it is, is given in the continual tense. So in other words it says that the the father is continually with an un, uninterrupted giving, giving the, the son all things, continually giving him all things. <clears throat> you know, the measure of love is seen in the nature of a gift. The true measurement of love is in the giving of oneself. Would you not agree? The greatest way to show someone you love them is the giving of yourself to that one. Or, or one's dearest possession to another. And this is what we have when it says, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And we also see that this is true in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that, what did he do? He gave, you know, one of his dearest possessions. He gave his only begotten son. Now think about this. If God loves his son so much that, as John said, he continually keeps giving him all things. And all means all. Everything you can think of. God continually. And one day he will put all things. Right now not everything is under his subjection. But one day all things will even be under his subjection, including Satan and all the demons and all the unbelievers. Every, every tongue shall confess. Every knee will bow and every tongue shall confess. But if God loves his son so much that he's continually giving him all things, and yet God so loves us that he gave us his only begotten son, who he loves so much that he's continually giving him all things, what does that say about God's love for us? It's unbelievable, isn't it? He loves his son so much he gives him everything. And yet he loves us so much that he gave us his son. It just gives me goosebumps thinking about his love. We love him because he first loved us. Well, the transition from John the Baptist to Jesus was almost complete. But before John would fade away, he gave, like a good minister of God, he gave a final invitation. And that's what we see in verse 36. He said, he that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And this reminds me of what Jesus said over in verse 18. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life. In other words, he's already condemned, right? But the wrath of God abideth on him. If a person believes on Jesus Christ and receives him and puts her or his faith in him by inviting Jesus to take over his life, it says here he will receive the gift of everlasting life. Right then and there. Otherwise, what? If he doesn't, he's condemned already. If he does not believe on the Son, the wrath of God abides on him. So the choice is ours, you know. Will it be eternal life in heaven because of our faith in Christ's shed blood and his atoning death on our behalf? Or will it be God's wrath eternally experienced in hell for having rejected his Son's death for our sins? 
What we do with Jesus is up to us. You know, it's our own individual choice. But what we choose will affect us for all of eternity. Most serious decision we can ever make, is it not? So choose Jesus and choose life. All right, we'll close in just reading this last little bit here. Um, John's testimony against Herod. And for this, just look with me. Oops, we gotta, we got to go to another... We have to go over to Luke for this. Luke 3. This is really the last time we're going to hear from John, other than when we hear about his death. <clears throat> so look with me at John, uh, Luke 3, verses 19 and 20. Luke 3, 19. But Herod the Tetrarch, being reproved by him, and the him there is John the Baptist, <laughs> For Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done, added yet this above all, that he shut up John in prison. This marks the end of the transition between the Baptist and the Lord Jesus Christ. The next recorded event, as I said, with regard to our beloved John the Baptist will be his... uh, his beheading and that experience. You see, he was imprisoned now at this point, not after the temptation in the wilderness, but at this point in our chronology, the next thing that happens is John, um, he was so bold, so brazen. He went and he, he pointed his long finger in the face of the one man who could arrest and kill him, Herod Antipas, the, gr- the grandson of Herod the Great. Remember that horrible person? Herod Antipas, who had taken um, and married, he divorced his wife, had, an, I guess, an adulterous ref- affair with his brother Philip's wife, whose name was Herodias. Isn't that interesting? Herod and Herodias. And uh, she left Philip, and the two of them married, Herod and Herodias. And John pointed out you know, that this was a sinful thing that Herod had done, And Herodias didn't like it. We'll talk about this again when we get to, I think it's lesson number 68, about two or three years from now. (laughs) But anyway, uh, Herodias didn't like it, so she said to her husband, you arrest that man. Of course, she wanted him dead. And you know the story about how her daughter, Salome, danced a sensual dance. And and then Herod was so lustful and disgusting that he says, I'll give you whatever you want. And her mother put her up to the little ploy of asking for John the Baptist's head, and that was the end of John the Baptist, but not really because he instantly went into glory, did he not? No, I don't. Maybe I explain that in Lesson 68 if you want to look at it. I don't know how long he was in prison. I don't know. All right, well, that is the end of our lesson. Um, the, The death of John the Baptist, by the way, was apparently taken by the Lord Jesus Christ as a sign from his father, his heavenly father, was taken as a sign that now that John was decreasing, it was time for him to increase. So he leaves the baptizing ministry down in the Judean countryside and he heads up, as soon as he hears that John was arrested, he heads up toward Galilee, where his main ministry will take place, up in Galilee, right? But on his way north to Galilee, he must needs pass through Samaria. And that's where we will 
continue next week as we look at one of my favorite stories of all, the Samaritan woman at the well. All right, let's close in prayer. Father God, thank you so much for this time together in your word. Thank you, Lord, that already my throat is feeling better just from talking and talking about you. Thank you, God, that our Lord Jesus Christ originated with you in in eternity past in heaven. And that because he is the eternal son of God, we know that when he talked to us, he had firsthand divine knowledge. And we can trust that all of his words are true, for they are indeed the very words of God himself. Thank you that he was the fullness of the expression of of yourself and that he had the full measure of the Holy Spirit that he is over all and through all and that one day all things will be put into subjection to him father we know that one way or another all men will confess Jesus Christ as Lord and all will bow before him so it is so far better to do that now of our own will to do it while we still can have everlasting life with you in heaven. Father, please, if there be one here who has never fallen on her face and confessed you as Lord and Savior, that she is a sinner greatly in need of the salvation that you offer so freely, I pray she would take care of that matter this very hour, and we will praise you and lift you up because when you are lifted up you will draw all men unto yourself we love you thank you for the complete bible old and new testaments we love you jesus may we walk with you this week for we pray in your blessed name amen